0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and one of my mentors, Dr. Robert Kerman. Dr. Kerman is a native of New York and attended medical school at Upstate Medical Center, Syracuse, followed by a residency in pathology at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Boston Hospital for Women, and Massachusetts General Hospital and then a residency in OBGYN completed at Boston Hospital for Women and Los Angeles County Hospital, University of Southern California. He had an immensely productive academic career, working as an academic pathologist first at USC and Georgetown before joining the faculty at Johns Hopkins, where he was the Richard W. Tolind Distinguished Professor of Gynecologic Pathology, the Director of Gynecologic Pathology, and a Professor of Oncology. His contributions to the literature were extensive. Many of the concepts that GYN and general pathologists use came from his work. He edited and wrote texts, spoke all around the world, and became a thought leader in the field. My story collided with his toward the end of his career when I spent two years as his fellow from 2012 to 2014. Dr. Kerman, Bob, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Yeah.
0: So I realized when I was prepping for this show that if I covered all the things I'd like to talk to you about, it would be a way too long. So I've tried to limit my goals to those that will help others to understand maybe a little bit what it was like to learn from you in the hopes that it will ignite others in the same interest that I had after being around you in GYN pathology. The goal of this series is to get to the heart of why people ended up studying GYN pathology. So first, we'll focus on how you came to study medicine pathology and then GYN pathology. Can you tell me what your family was like? I know from an early age, you wanted to be a physician, and you had some physicians in your family, but was your family a scientific family?
1: Well, I had an uncle and, uh, who was a general practitioner, mm-hmm. who was my doctor when I was a kid growing up, and he had a son, my cousin, who became a uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and professor of psychiatry at the University of Rochester. Mm -hmm. Uh, Growing up, my parents, neither of whom were physicians, had uh, great uh, respect and admiration both for my uncle and my cousin, and undoubtedly, it was that admiration and respect that led me to uh, want to pursue a career in in medicine.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know your parents emigrated here from Austria. What was it like to grow up in a family surrounded by that experience of having come here to New York. And then what, do you feel like there was pressure in your family to achieve things since your family had fled from a, a tragic situation and survived a form of trauma?
1: I think it was never formally uh, something that uh, was uh, pressed upon me, but I think there was a subtle message there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you need to uh, succeed. Uh, my father was a uh, also was a uh, blue collar worker He was a tool and dye maker and he frequently had to change his jobs for a variety of reasons, so there was a certain amount of uh, financial insecurity mm-hmm. I think um, not really again something that was clearly stated, but I think there was also an underlying message there that uh, I need to pursue a career that would be uh, provide a, a, stable kind of a financial, um, you know, environment for me. And I think medicine, although I, I never intended to, to go into medicine to make a lot of money, but I wanted something that was, uh, you know, stable, certainly okay. more than my, what my father was doing.
0: What is a tool and die maker? What does that mean?
1: Uh, well, he, uh, the main thing he wound up working for was uh, for wristwatches and uh, including a bou- boulevard uh huh. a fairly you know pretty well known watch company well uh, what a tool and die uh, maker is he would design and and produce the the dies that would be used to produce certain parts of the watch
0: oh, like dyeing and casting some metal yeah exactly. and okay, That's the whole okay. Thing. And,
1: okay. Uh, so that was his, uh, that was what he mainly did,
0: and that was what he already knew how to do when he came here, or was that something he learned when he got to this? Uh, no, that
1: was not th- not nothing that he had done when he was in uh, Vienna. Okay, uh, he was a salesman there, but when he came to this country, uh, he, his, he he I mean, he wound up speaking English, but he always had a very heavy accent, and for a variety of reasons, he wound up um, uh, being kind of. Um guided into this career by a person who uh provided my parents with what's called affidavits at that time you needed uh you needed someone who was uh in the United States obviously a citizen who mm-hmm. was well established who would uh, provide um kind of assurance that my parents wouldn't become wards of the state right and the person uh uh, was a really wonderfully nice person, a g- guy who owned a small business that was, it was quite successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, he helped my parents uh, kind of get introduced into society in the U.S. And uh, ultimately, actually, after my father died, he was about 70 when my father died. And um, ultimately, my, my mother, who worked for this person, uh, in his company, uh, ultimately uh, married him after a couple of years after my father died. So I almost regarded him as a, as a, uh, well. He was became a stepfather for me. But if it hadn't been for him, mm-hmm. I wouldn't uh, have been uh, born. He wouldn't so, have existed. And, yeah, and and for those who don't, life as well. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. So for those who don't know the story, your your parents fled Austria. When the Germans occupied Austria, I I won't take a stab at pronouncing the word that stands for that starts with an A. Do you want to say it, Anschluss? Anschluss. And I didn't realize that person became your stepfather. See. Mm-hmm. I learned something new every day. So I will point the listeners in the show notes. I've linked to the article from January 2018 in the International Journal of GYN Pathology. Dr. Young interviewed you and did a really um, nice job of cataloging your journey through training and the various people who helped you along the way. However, in a broad sense, can you tell me how you ended up choosing GYN pathology as a specialty? Did you always know that you wanted to do pathology and specifically GYN pathology, or do you think you were influenced along the way by the? mentors that you that guided oh you.
1: definitely influenced my mentors i uh after finishing my second year of medical school mm-hmm. i wasn't really interested in path- going to pathology at that time i was thinking going to well one time i was thinking of psychiatry again i think because of that cousin that i mentioned mm-hmm. that that wasn't really something i really seriously went into but i was thinking of internal medicine. And at the end of my second year, we had at those times, we had the summer off. Uh, my medical school, as you mentioned, was in Syracuse, New York, but my parents lived in in um, Queens at that time, Queens, New York. Mm-hmm. So I, um, uh, I applied for a position and I got it at... Uh, I figured um, pathology would be good background to have to go into internal medicine. So I applied and got a position working uh, for a summer at Albert Einstein in Mm -hmm. the uh, Department of uh, Pathology, and I was uh, very much intrigued by it. The uh, chief of the pathology there at that time, his name was Alfred Angrist, was a really very well-known pathologist who focused on autopsy pathology. And I was just fascinated by how much we would go to these conferences, uh, mortality conferences, and he would, was able to tell so much, uh, put together so much of a story on an individual person who had died based on that autopsy that I, I thought was just, just amazing. And I was always interested in pathophysiology, how, how things, um, how the pathophysiology of disease. Mm-hmm. So I found that uh, really interesting, and I said, hmm, pathology may be something that I want to pursue uh, as a career choice. So then the next summer came around, um, and I needed, I was going to, that's after my third year, I wanted to uh, see what would it be like working for a uh, pathologist who was in private practice because I thought that's what I would do mm-hmm. and I got directed from a resident in pathology at, at Syracuse to um, look at a inquire for a position with a pathologist who was at um, a small hospital in New York City it's called Knickerbocker Hospital mm-hmm. um, right across the street from City College in New York and uh, his name was William Ober and um, I was uh, I met him. I introduced myself, and uh, on the spot, he offered me a position. He was even going to pay me, which was fantastic.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah,
1: sure, yeah, yeah, So he was a he was a, a really a remarkable guy, a real Renaissance uh, person, uh, brilliant actually. Um, and uh, he was originally from Boston, trained at Harvard and was a, um, as I said, he was the head of pathology at the Sneckerbacher Hospital, but he had appointments at a number at uh, Albert Einstein, Columbia, other places. And um, he was really interested in gynecologic pathology, made some important contributions to the field, both in gestational trophoblastic disease and in uterine sarcomas. And I would go to the hospital in the morning and we'd sit down, chat a little bit. he uh, insisted that I learn how to date the endometrium, uh, which it uh, was based on an article by Arthur Herding uh, uh-huh. several years earlier. And uh, so I spent the day you know, dating endometria, and he also got me involved in a project, namely how uh, the effect of IUDs on the endometrium. And we wound up writing a paper on that. Um, and but, but it was even more than just that. He was just such a, uh, an incredible person in, in his knowledge uh, that he, he became my, really my first mentor. And um, we would go for lunch. He would uh, take me out to lunch at his local Chinese restaurant in Manhattan. And after that, he would travel around New York City as a consultant gynecologic pathologist. And I would be uh, going with him. And, his sidekick, uh, basically. Yeah. Places, and they'd show him interesting <laughs> cases and he would... Uh, pronounce his diagnosis. And uh, I just said, this is really great. And uh, he would do the, you know, he'd knock off all of his morning's work and by lunchtime, and then he would do this, go, go, going around the city doing consulting. And on the way, we might stop at a museum or an antique shop and pick up something uh, that he was interested in. I say, this is, a, this is a pretty
0: good job. You know, <laughs> like it, it was good. the museum got you i can see it yeah (laughs) (laughs) having time to go to a museum (laughs) that is fitting that
1: really influenced me in pathology that sort of sealed it for me for pathology and uh because of that interest in gynecologic pathology that started pointing me in that direction so when it came time to apply for uh uh, at that time we did internships Mm -hmm. and uh I I wound up doing an internship at Beth Israel Hospital, where I spent half of my time doing clinical medicine and half the time doing pathology. But when it came for the residency, I said, gee, I'm interested, Dr. Ober, in gynecologic pathology. Where would you recommend that I go? So he said, oh, there's only one place you got to go, and that's to go to the Mass General Hospital and work with Bob Scully. He and Scully had been roommates together years ago during their residency and were really good friends. And, um, he said, that's, he, he knows things. He's just, this guy's fantastic. He sees things in slides that I don't see, and I'm not an idiot. So for the residency, I, I met with, went to see Dr. Spelly, wonderful guy. And he said, what I would suggest to you, Bob is not to come here immediately, but go to, a, do your start your residency at the Peter Bent Brigham? Because that's where I did my residency under Bert Wolbach. Wolbach was no longer the chief at the Brigham at that time. He said, get your basics down. The Brigham doesn't have a huge volume. You can really get your basics down. The Mass General is a, is a real factory. I mean, they have enormous volume. And why don't you spend some time there? And then after you do that, come to me and uh, spend a, do a fellowship with me in G1 pathology. So that sounded great. So mm-hmm. I did that. I went to the Brigham, and which was a really good terrific experiences, just like he described. We rotated through, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Free for free Hospital for Women, Boston line Inn, Children's Hospital. So I got my basics in pathology there. And then uh, when it came time uh, to, to, you know, Finish that. I, I, I again contacted Scully, and Scully said, "Well, you're lucky because at this point there was no money uh, for the fellowship, and I, I with him, I was going to have to do moonlighting autopsies or something to support myself and my ex-wife at the time." Uh-huh. Uh, And he said, we just got a grant. My colleague, Arthur Herbst, and I got a grant from the American Cancer Society. This is where they had broken the story about how DES caused Mm -hmm. cancer, vaginal cancer and cervical cancer in young women who were born of mothers who had been exposed to DES. Mm -hmm. So they started a, a registry for clear cell carcinoma, and I was the first fellow there and so these cases would come in i would look at them i would you know do all the leg work and enter them into the registry and as a, and also at the same time i would look at scully's consultation cases he had already enormous consultation practice he was even by then he was sort of the, the world's eminent gynecologic pathologist So uh, I would look at the cases and uh, read his letters. His letters were like reading a textbook. So I learned an immense amount of uh, of pathology that way. And then uh, when it came time to, um, well, I had to go into the Army. This was a time of the Vietnam War. And uh, I had uh, had been chosen for what was called the, uh, uh, it was called the court plan. I, I, I had to go into the public health service. To, and what that would do was, uh, I was just chosen, that it was a random kind of pick if you would pick, pick to go into this. And uh, I had so what would happen was they uh, the, they would um, you would be deferred to your residency finish your residency but as soon as your residency was done you would have to go to the public health service and, and work as a as in the, your specialty field which was obviously pathology so um, I uh, I said gee it'd be nice to go to the AFIP I could really go to the GYN pathology and really you know. Do that. So I went to the AFIP and I what I found was that the Public Health Service did not supply people to AFIP. You had to be in the Army or mm. the Navy, they had to be in the military. So to make a long story short, I switched places with another guy who had this so-called Berry Plan, which was like this court plan, but it was for people in the military. He wanted to go in the Public Health Service. I wanted to go into the Army. So we basically switched places. It wasn't. It wasn't an easy job to pull off. I can tell. So, you. were
0: you actually enlisted in the army?
1: Well, yeah, So we switched places. I got his position uh-huh. for the army for you for this berry plan. He got my position for the court plan. So uh-huh. when we came up. I got. Then it was. Then the next step was how where you get assigned. You know. Now I was in the army, but I could have been gone anywhere. But again, I won't make a bore you with all the details. Make a long story short, I wound up getting posted at the AFIP in gynecologic pathology and started working with, uh, Jason Norris, who was then the chief of gynecologic pathology. And mm-hmm. I spent three years there, uh, starting a number of interesting projects. And Jason was another f- fantastic pathologist mm-hmm. and uh, a wonderful, another mentor of mine. So I had three mentors, I had Ober to begin with, then Scully and then Norris.
0: And, and so was uh, was dr norris in the army as well is that no, to work at the, uh, okay. at
1: the afip they had a combination of military chiefs okay. of the division and also uh and also civilians he was a civilian
0: and was this like 1970 ish when this was all happening or uh, yeah
1: 73 uh, to 76 i was at okay the AFIP.
0: oh wow yeah towards the end of the vietnam war that's a yeah. tough road to hoe so then you said you had three mentors, and it was with Dr. Ober where you s- sort of started realizing, "I, I, this gyn pathology thing is for me." How common was it at that time to have such spe- subspecialization? Weren't most pathologists still generalists at that time?
1: Yeah, they, no, you're absolutely right. It was not common at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was just a general pathologist, and you might have a, a focal area of interest, uh, you know, a specific area of interest. And and Scully, for example, was an unbelievable. He was he was amazing. He was truly one of the greatest pathologists, I think, of of all time. And he was not only a great GYN pathologist, but a generalist, too, which I never considered myself. Because when I finished at the AFIP, uh, and then, as you mentioned, I I went uh, to L.A. and got my... Oh, so I decided I was interested in GYN pathology, uh, Mm -hmm. just to pursue that issue a little bit further. And uh, at the Free Hospital for Women, I would go to these, uh, you know, uh, conferences where they would uh, basically tumor board conferences, and what impressed me there was the knowledge that the gynecologic oncologists had of pathology. See, at that time, the mm-hmm. G1 uh, oncologists, both at Hopkins and definitely at in Harvard, were spent time learning pathology, so they were pretty accomplished pathologists, and they were unlike the pathologists. I'm like, putting aside Scully for a moment, most pathologists, you know, they look at the slides, they give you a diagnosis, and that's the end of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. These
1: pathologists, oncologists would put the whole thing together. They take mm-hmm. the pathology, they understood the clinical situation, and they would understand how to diagnose and treat the patient. And I was very impressed with that. So that's when I decided that to make me a better gynecologic pathologist, and I also kind of missed clinical medicine because, as I said, I did an internship, I did some clinical medicine, I would pursue a, a residency in uh, OBGYN, which I did. So after the AFIP, uh, well, actually, even before I went to AFIP, make a long story short, I did a year of OB at the Lying In, and then after my time at the AFIP, I went out to USC and finished my training in OBGYN, where I did virtually exclusively GYN uh clinical gynecology so when i did finish with that residency and i was looking for a position, i was determined to do a combination of gynecology and gynecologic pathology which was really occurring mainly at hopkins uh, who had, and at that time the person who was doing that was J. donald woodruff mm-hmm. and i met with woodruff and uh, became a good friend of his. And uh, he was a, a, another, I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but he was close to it in the fact that he had done exactly what I wanted to do now. He was an, a terrific gynecologic surgeon and he was a really good gynecologic pathologist. The book, uh, the, he uh, wrote one of the classic textbooks on G1 pathology. Yeah. And uh, I met with him. And uh, there wasn't anything available at Hopkins at the time. But again, to make a long story short, I wound up at Georgetown and where I did, and I sort of just crafted this, this career choice, uh, gynecologic pathology specifically. And uh, very, I did some breast pathology also because I'd, I'd done that at AFIP as well. So I did some breast, but mainly GYN pathology. And I did clinical gynecology. I did surgery, not oncology surgery, but routine gynecology, um, hysterectomies, sp- cervical biopsies, the whole thing, and uh, and specifically one pathology. And then while I was there, again, uh, I keep saying, making a long story short, because this, yeah, this is why you know, we're here. There's
0: no time limit on a podcast. That's the whole point. You can make your right. story as long as you like. So I, um, uh,
1: I was interviewed, they were interviewing the the Department of Gynecology, OBGYN at Georgetown was being evaluated by uh, by a committee who was involved with that. And one of the people that came to do the interview to check out the department was um, a, per- a person who was the head of, uh, uh, was, his name was Ed Wallach, he was the chief of uh, OBGYN at Hopkins. And he came and he interviewed the various members of the department to evaluate it. Uh, and uh, he interviewed me. And we started chatting and he got, became very interested in the fact that I was doing GYN pathology. And um, about a year or so after that um, uh, interview, they were, they were looking for, Woodruff was going to be retiring, J.T. Woodruff, who I mentioned earlier, and they mm-hmm. wanted a successor. And the person who was working with him there by the time, his 2nd in command was Tim Parmley, And Parmley wasn't interested in, in doing that and taking over that position. So they were looking for somebody else. And Wallop remembered me and uh, and uh, recruited me to, to Johns Hopkins, which was one of the greatest things that happened to me in, in my life. So, and again, he, in a sense, was a, if you will, another kind of mentor. He was a wonderful guy and uh, very supportive of me. And uh, and there was this chair in gynecologic uh, pathology, as you mentioned. So I was mm-hmm. recruited to uh, take over um, from uh, from Woodruff who was the first chair of that uh, that who had that, had that chair and then I I was the second chair of uh, the Tillman professorship at uh, at Johns Hopkins.
0: Right. And so this was around 1990 and so you would have started medical school in what year? 19 I started
1: Medical school in 1964.
0: So 1964, you start medical school. By 1990, you're a professor at Johns Hopkins. That's a pretty good turnaround time for com- accomplishing all those fellowships and two residencies. Um a lot of people go to tumor board and are impressed with clinicians being able to put the whole story together, but not everyone then turns around and does a clinical residency. So so did you always know that you wanted to practice in an academic setting? I know earlier you mentioned you thought you were going to be in private practice. Oh. It, seems like, it seems like looking at your CV, you pretty much hit the ground running. You started publishing, like you said, with Dr. Over. It was during medical school. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like? To get started in an academic setting and the process of publishing i can't imagine that you would have done what you have done with your career if you didn't enjoy the process so what do you like about it
1: well for starters i when i would convi- i was originally like uh, i said earlier i was thinking of going to private practice when i got that position over the summer with bill ober but he mm-hmm. was even though he was in private practice he he was writing articles Mm-hmm. And he was really a, an academic pathologist. But then that, what sealed it for me was the, was the time I spent with Scully. That's when I really decided academic medicine was for me. So mm-hmm. uh, when I went to AFIP, it was a, a fantastic experience because at that time I got the enormous consultation material. And I, I, I just found, found the whole experience really, really Cool. At the time I was there, there was a real interest in, in a, a tumor called the endodermal sinus tumor, which is ultimately called the yolk sac tumor. Mm-hmm. And I got sort of got interested because when, when I was working with Scully, he got a lot of consultations because at that time that tumor was not well appreciated. But what was was becoming clear was it it might be related to the yolk sac, the human yolk sac. And at that time, we were just beginning to learn that the yolk sac produced Mm alpha-fetoprotein. And, you know, it seemed obvious that if this tumor was related to the yolk sac, it would produce AFP, too. And there were studies beginning to show that it was. So I thought, gee, it'd be really cool if I could identify AFP in tissue sections of, of yolk sac tumors. So uh, we started, when I was at AFIP, I began working with an old friend of mine. Well, we were residents together at the MGH. He was a renal pathologist, Bob, Bob Colvin, and he was an accomplished um, immunopathologist. So he he taught me how to do immunohistochemistry. And uh, we first started trying to do immunofluorescence, but that didn't work because uh, autofluorescence uh, in, in fixed tissue made it impossible to do. And he ran across this paper uh, by a guy by the name of Clive Taylor, who was at USC, who uh, demonstrated the value of the, how immunoperoxies could be used on formal fixed tissue. So at, when I was at AFIP, I started doing studies with immunoperoxies. This was 76. So this is the beginning of immunohistochemistry. And yeah. uh, I was I was identifying AFP in these yolk sac tumors, and then I expanded my interest to other uh, mm-hmm. tumors of uh, gestational trophoblastic disease, and we like, started looking for HCG. I got the antibodies from colleagues at, who were at the NIH. Uh, so there were a lot of little things that came together that, for me, so uh, immunohistochemistry was something that got me started a, a little bit of a niche in terms mm-hmm. of pathology. And I, I wrote a series of papers with Jason Norris on germ cell tumors of the ovary, which were at the time were really important papers, again, because of this enormous amount of, of, of tissue that was available at the AFIP. I also started looking at testicular tumors and in collaboration with p- people at NIH who were doing radio assays on the blood of of uh, men who were in the army who had testicular tumors, I started doing the analysis on the tissue and mm-hmm. did the collaborative study looking at the tissue sections for, uh, with immunoproxase, correlating now with the serum markers. And this led to the whole development of monitoring pa- patients with uh, uh, immunoassays to treat them uh, with, uh, based, on their immune, uh, based on their serum levels. And this really changed the whole therapy of germ cell tumors, which were completely, were highly aggressive and lethal into, tumor, into, tissue, into tumors that were begin highly treatable. So that was another area of interest of mine. And yeah. then when I went to, back to USC and uh, started doing my clinical residency, uh, it, I became interested in endometrial hyperplasia, because the chief of OBGYN there uh, posed the question at one of our meetings, how, what do you, how can you predict will, how one how women should be managed or treated if they've got a hyperplasia? So when I finished my residency at OBGYN, at, uh, his name was Dan Michelle, by the way. He was the chief of the department of OBGYN. When I got, got to Georgetown, I spent one day a week going over back to AFIP and to work with Jason Norris on looking at endome- patients with endometrial hyperplasia. And uh, we started doing a series of studies, first in distinguishing the most atypical forms of hyperplasia from well differentiated carcinoma, which was difficult at that time. And also to look at what happened, long-term follow-up of women of all ages who were diagnosed with various grades of hyperplasia, what happened to them. So we did a long-term follow-up study. Again, a unique kind of study that could have only been done at a place like AFIP because of the, the wealth of the material they had and the ability to to get follow-up information. So uh, those are Why were
0: they able to specifically get follow-up information?
1: That, because way, I know- They yeah. had a whole division uh, of people who would, you know, these are the, most of the people that came into AFIP were mostly, they were they were mostly civilian, but they were also military people. And they had a branch, the logistics branch that would just contact people to find out what happened to them. So well, they, that's they, a uh,
0: dream for a researcher. So I'm assuming that most of these patients with hyperplasia were not in the army, were these Spouses of exactly spouses, okay.
1: and also again, a lot of uh, material that came to AFIP was from civilians as well.
0: And they would call. So this division, this would call these patients and say, "We looked at your specimen a year ago. What's going on with this patient now?" Well, at that
1: time, you know that uh, we didn't have HIP and all these other things that I know. Like Usually, physicians and the physicians uh-huh. would uh, provide follow-up information.
0: Okay, because so we're so that you were traveling back and forth from your job. To the AFIP, but these were not your patients that you were taking biopsies on necessarily. Right, were... right. Okay, right. okay. That is an interesting. I was going to ask you about hyperplasia. We can dive into it now. This is one area that I think every pathologist, even if they're not a GI pathologist, encounters this. It's a very common question, right? And and the more you go out in the world, the more you train people, the more you realize this is a reproducible problem that people have with classifying this hyperplasia. So. Take me back to the time when you were at the AFIP and you were looking at these samples. What was the classification scheme like? What what was being used in clinical practice, and how, when you set up your scheme, how did you come up with that?
1: Well, at the time, uh, it was called adenomatous hyperplasia, carcinoma, and situ. These really very atypical forms of hyperplasia were difficult to. Distinguish a well-differentiated carcinoma. So the first project that I, I did with Jason was we were looking at these cases, and um, Jason kept saying, "Oh, well, you got to look for invasion of the stroma. That's how you make the distinction. If it's a, if the process is invading the stroma, that's carcinoma. If it isn't, it's hyperplasia, atypical hyperplasia." His... He came, his training was from uh, Barnes Hospital, uh, Lauren Ackerman, and they used the term atypical hyperplasia versus adenoma hyperplasia. Adenoma hyperplasia was a Hertigian, a Hertig uh, uh, Harvard term, but I won't get into to, to that. But way. I
0: mean, atypical I- hyperplasia, it's really come full circle now. <laughs> That's what we're saying now. <laughs>
1: Well oh, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so I was looking at these cases and uh, I I started saying gee you know I began to recognize what I thought was what Jason was talking about invasion of the stroma this altered stroma that I mm-hmm. had. Uh, it's you know like what you see in breast cancer or, or kind of a desmoplastic reaction, and I said ah that's obviously what he was talking about. So uh, I started, collected these and made, you know you know made, distinguished the cases based on this and also this other pattern of very confluent architecture. So I started showing the cases to Jason, and Jason said no I didn't I, that desmoplas that's not what I had in mind. I had been more of this confluent <laughs> reaction, but he says, but he said I can see what you're talking about so that uh, we developed these criteria based on uh with a follow-up again you know what you because these patients the first study we did we saw that we had the endometrial biopsy or curettage and then the hysterectomy was done within a month and oh. uh, we would look at the hysterectomy specimen and see which ones had cancer and which ones didn't and mm-hmm. based on that we came up with our criteria for making that distinction based on quote-unquote invasion of the stroma, which included a confluent architecture and this desmoplastic reaction.
0: And that was the the terminology which persisted until, I don't know, the 2000s that you came up with then. Do you remember as a maybe even as a resident. What what was the first project you worked on where the results surprised you and you knew it was going to have a lasting impact? You've written so many papers that I'm sure have you know contributed that people have a lot to say about. Or do you think in the moment when you're just going through the process, writing papers, publishing papers, working every day today, that you don't see it in the moment? Does every paper feel the same? Or maybe early on that paper, the work you did with clear cell carcinoma and DES... Did you know that that was going to be? Uh,
1: well, the carcinoma was big. Again, I, I mm-hmm. came into it at the beginning, but you know the the, 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 the classic you know, recognition of this was by Scully and Herp. So mm-hmm. I came mm-hmm. I in as a fellow. But but while working with Scully, that, another interesting thing that happened was he had a case. He sh- and he knew to see since I worked with Ober, Ober was interested. I mentioned in trophoblastic disease. Scully got a case sent to him. That just horrible, and uh, he you know, he called me in and he said, Hey, Bob, say, take a look at this case that was sent to me. What do you think about it? And I looked at it and it was, I said, Gee, it looks like a sarcoma, it looks like deciduous sarcoma, or something like that. He said, Well, it's a very interesting case. He said, I've seen a couple of these, uh, and you know, and he had amazing memory for cases that he saw. One of the one of the real um, one of his unique abilities was he saw a case and he'll remember one that he saw 20 years ago that looked the same. Says, Can I
0: just m- mention right now to you that you do that as well? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That I would say that about you. So yeah. I guess uh, turnabout is fair play, but I'm sorry, go ahead. I interrupted. Yeah, you. No,
1: well, I'm pleased to hear that. It's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he said, I think this is actually a benign condition. It looks bad, but I don't think it's bad. So he said, so he said, Bill Ober sent me a case. Why don't you go through my files and see if you can find that one? And I did, and sure enough, it looked just like this one. And I went through his files and I found another one. We had maybe three cases. And uh, so I was in Boston at the time, and he said, Show them to some of the other G1 pathologists up there, see what they think. So I went to the Boston Hospital for Women Shirley Driscoll, Bob Ehrman, uh, John Craig. These were really fantastic G1 pathologists. And I showed them to them, and they thought, ah, This is some kind of weird leiomyosarcoma. It looks like Lyoma, some sarcoma. That's what they thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scully thought it was benign. He says, so when I went to AFIP, I mentioned the project to Jason, and Jason said, yeah, that just sounds like a good idea. Why don't you look through the files and see if you can find So I went through the files of Lyomyosarcoma, choriocarcinoma, and I found about seven or eight other cases that looked very similar. And again, we got the follow-up information, and they all did really well, except for a case or two when they, when the uterus is perforated after this di- at the time of the diagnosis, they, they perforated and the patient had complications. But other than that, they did well. So uh, we wrote a paper on that and Scully suggested the term trophoblastic pseudotumor. So we wrote this paper. I was the first author, uh, uh, Jason was the second, and Scully, Scully was the second, I think Jason was the third, anyway, and we call it trophoblastic pseudotumor. So then when I met at, at the Georgetown, a good buddy of mine, who we were residents together at USC, became a G1 oncologist. He was in Minnesota. He sent me a case. He said, Bob, what do you think of this? It's been called a leiomyosarcoma, but but the patient's got an elevated HCG titer. Oh, that was the other thing. We identified mm-hmm. HCG by immunoperoxidase right. in those 10 to 12 cases that I pulled out from Scully and from the AFIP and sh- proved that it was not a sarcoma, but that it was trophoblastic disease. So I looked at this case and it was really wild. I said, to Leo, his name is Leo Twiggs. I said, Leo, this is the worst case I've ever seen of this thing I'm worried about, it, even though all of our cases were benign. Well, again, make a long story short, this one turned out to be malignant. And it's about the same time Scully saw another case that was malignant. So mm-hmm. he wrote an editorial with Robin Young say, saying renaming this entity as a placental cytotrophoblastic tumor. And when I used to get together with Scully uh, years later, we, we became, you know, we were good friends, although we disagreed on some things. I won't even get into that, but we definitely been <laughs> together or whatever. But he, he, used, to, he used to say, uh, he, he would call this one of my most egregious errors that I called this, that I wrote a paper calling this benign tumor, trophoblastic pseudotumor, when in fact it was malignant. Of course, I pointed out to him that the senior author on the paper was none other than Bob Scully. But anyway, it was kind of funny.
0: Well, so, yeah. That,
1: that was a big surprise, if you ask me about a surprise. And uh, mm-hmm. another surprise I had was while I was looking at the germ cell tumors of the ovary at AFIP, we ran a, uh, you know, I was looking at yolk sac tumors and so, so forth. We ran a, across a case that looked just like an embryonal carcinoma of the testis but it had never been described in the ovary. So uh, we reported that as embryonal carcinoma of the ovary, distinct from yolk sac carcinoma, a yolk sac tumor, because the yolk sac tumor, which produced AFP, this embryo produced both HCG and AFP, again, uh, proven by immunoperoxidase. So uh, again, it was like using immunoperoxidase to, uh, to really extend our abilities in terms of research and ultimately, of course, as we all know now, it became incorporated into clinical uh, useful diagnostic pathology. So that was, again, a surprise that it had never been described before. So this was the first uh, tumor that was uh, reported in the gynecologic, uh, in the gynecologic literature.
0: Mm-hmm. Another project you were involved in was the formulation of the Bethesda criteria. This came about, the story is very interesting, about public pressure to standardize cervical cancer screening and how people were signing them out. What do you remember about that time and that project and how you all put together the guidelines?
1: Well, uh, that, that was related to the work I was doing um, with a, a couple of my, my colleagues, Ben Jensen and, and uh, um uh, Drawing a blank on his name, but Wayne Lancaster, uh, on eight, uh, HPV. Yeah. I got interested in, um, through Ben Jensen, who was at the NIH at the time, about, and again, using immunoperoxidase. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this was in the uh, early, late 70s that we got interested in looking at c- uh, cervical dysplasia. At the time, that was called dysplasia uh, for HPV. And we mm-hmm. started finding HPV by immunoperoxidase, and then ultimately with molecular genetic techniques, finding the uh, the DNA, proving that these dysplasias were due to HPV and not herpes, which at the time was thought to be the cause. And that was very controversial at the time. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I was in, we wrote some papers on it. And as a result, I was invited. Um, Diane Solomon, who was at the NIH, a cytopathologist, uh, was tasked with developing. Uh, by from the NIH, a schema for cervical cytology that would be more uniform because of all the problems with the pap classification. And because of my work with that, they invited me to participate uh, in the meetings that uh, ultimately led to the development. We had some, uh, a couple of uh, national meetings on the development of this new, uh, uh, to, to, task with developing a new terminology for uh, cytology. And uh, then we felt that the uh, that the tissue pathology should also be, uh, you know, reflect what was in the cytology. So again, because I was really mainly a surgical pathologist, although I did some cytology as well, uh, and that's how I was brought into uh, these meetings and uh, co chaired the meetings with Diane on uh, developing what was then ultimately called the Bethesda system.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly had a big impact. You and I wrote a paper together which attempted to add n- to the new developments on the origins of ovarian cancer um, about cortical inclusion cysts. All the developments around the origin of ovarian cancer, I assume, is one of the larger shifts in thinking that you have seen during your career, although it sounds like there have been many. Can you talk about what it was like to watch this theory of you know, the fallopian tube being a putative precursor unfold and where you see the data and this information standing now?
1: Yeah, well, that was another amazing uh, um, time in my career, and uh, I have to give credits to uh, Chris Crum, who I and his colleagues at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who I think mm-hmm. were really one of the first to, to, to make this point. And initially I thought, gee, this is, this is crazy. You know, we were, you know, all the the document, you know, all the stuff was including sculling was, you know, they come from the ovarian epith, germ cell epithelium, the covering of the ovary, but uh, surely there So one of the things I like to think that I always have is an open mind about Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I started, um, Looking at things uh, as, as we did a study at um, at Hopkins to try to uh, reproduce what uh, Chris and his colleagues had done at uh, Brigham, and we found, sure enough, these little precursor lesions in the in the tube. So I very quickly said, I think he's really onto something, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to me now. And uh, I think it just uh, it just kept taking off from there. I, I think it's one of the really the major uh, 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 studies that that changed our whole thinking in, in gynecologic pathology about the origin of the main killer of, of women, the main uh, uh, ovarian cancer. And I think it was uh, just a fantastic observation. And all the studies since then, I think, uh, have borne fruit that uh, that is the, uh, the mechanism. I think there may be some few people who still think otherwise, but I I'm I'm certainly not in that camp.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely a change to the management of patients. You're seeing, you know, prophylactic self-injectomies now for sterilization and things like that. So that's all going to be amazing to see that unfold. To shift a little bit to talk about another area where you've contributed to the educational experience, you have been involved as an editor with Blaustein's Pathology of the Female Genital Tract. It's a book that I You know, lived with those two years that I was your fellow. And subsequently, I even keep my old editions because I have so much writing and underlining in them. I know that you took over um, editing this textbook sort of unexpectedly. I'd um, like you to talk about that if you'd like to, but also maybe talk about what your philosophy is as an editor, because it's so different than the role you would have as even a primary author on a paper. How do you approach that task?
1: Well, yeah, I was really honored by uh, Ansel Blaustein to uh, uh, write some chapters in the second edition of the Blaustein textbook uh, that he, I guess he'd read some of our papers on hyperplasia and so forth. So in the second edition, he asked me to write some chapters. And then uh, just to. Finish that thought that you had raised earlier. When he was going to write the third edition, he wanted me to co-edit it with him. And then uh, we were going to get together and plan things. And sadly, he uh, he passed away. So Springer contacted me because they knew that he had asked me to, to co-edit and asked me to edit the next edition, which which I did, and subsequent editions, as you know, since then. Uh, my philosophy is to allow the edit, the, uh, give enormous leeway to the authors of a chapter to write it the way they think it should be. But with um, kind of my looking it over and, and, you know, supporting what they wrote, I never, I think had too much of a problem with, with, cause I selected really good people. You know, that's mm-hmm. the key, you know, you go select good people. They, they, mm-hmm. they, do a, they do a wonderful job. So my, you know, I did editing really mainly to make sure things sounded right and suggestions here and there, but I gave them pretty much free reign, uh, mm-hmm. as to how they thought that what their thinking was about a particular area they were writing on.
0: Yeah. So you select good people and then get out of the way, basically, yeah, it would be basically your philosophy. Right. Okay. So those who know you and trained with you can attest to what I'm about to say, that you have a warm spirit and a great sense of humor. I spent many hours looking over cases with you and listening to you constructing these notes. It's interesting. You said you were talking about reading Dr. Scully's letters. I feel the same way about um, basically taking down your notes when you were dictating to people and i have this picture of you in my head where you would go into deep thought and you probably don't even know you do this or maybe you do you would close your eyes and make like a tent with your fingers and put your forehead on your fingers and just spout out this knowledge which was so wonderful and so for however many months i sat in your office writing down all these things it was lovely And I'm sure it's really weird for you to hear this because I said this to Biggie when I interviewed her and she said it freaked her out. But I still find myself hearing your voice in my head. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned things from you about how to talk about what I was thinking about cases that I could never learn from a book. So thank you immensely. It was wonderful being your fellow. I know that other people who have trained with you feel the same thing. I reached out to some of the folks that I still keep in touch with, my co-fellows from Johns Hopkins. They are some of my closest friends and put together some questions from us. So here we go. This one came up a bunch. You, like most successful people we have known, um, always came across as extremely well-informed, which can be intimidating, especially in this era of information overload. The term lifelong learner gets thrown around a lot, but I think a lot of people actually don't take that seriously. But you, you really did. So what I want to know is what is your process for finding and digesting new information? What platforms do you use? And do you have a list of can't miss things that you look over or how does that work for you?
1: Well, um, I guess reading, staying up on the literature, uh, recognizing that uh, what we, for I mean, you know, people talk about it all the time, what you learn in, in medical school, you know, once you're 10 years out or something, 90% of that's wrong or not wrong, but replaced by right. new information. So it's obviously, well, like you just mentioned, it's a lifelong learning experience. And again, keeping an open mind, staying up on the literature, going to meetings, interacting with your colleagues, uh, just learning new things, um, I think is is the key to be able to to stay on top of uh, what's happening
0: so is it like you know your alarm clock goes off in the morning you get a cup of coffee and you go straight to like ajsp is that just like an everyday thing for you or do you just know when they're coming out how does that work for you <laughs> when you say now, staying? it's totally different that's true i, mean, I just the uh
1: thing i look at his JAMA.
0: Oh, well, that's lovely. I mean, you're also someone who I would consider, I remember you were commuting a lot when I was your fellow and you were listening to courses on the Great Courses Plus, I think about something like Greek literature. I don't know what you were up to, but yeah. it seemed like you were always learning about other things, not just pathology. So maybe as your career went on, you started to branch out or maybe you've always been like that, but it seems like you were someone who was always interested in learning new things and traveling. Well,
1: you're right. That commute yeah. was fantastic. And uh, I would <laughs> listen to a lecture. Uh, those would start out with tapes and then it went to uh, CDs and so forth. I still do that. I guess, again, uh, Ober being a, a renaissance man, my cousin who was, I mentioned, the uh, psycho, psychoanalyst. Um, and I have a, the only, my other close relative is a, a cousin who is a political scientist. And again, I, and even in college, I really enjoyed my liberal arts courses tremendously. And I'm so glad that I I took so many of them because it, like you say, it just opens up a whole new world. For you, so in, in, I love science, but I really love reading and learning about other things as well. And yeah. I mean, right now, I'm very interested in cosmology and astrophysics, and um, as
0: one does, yeah. So has that been a pandemic interest, or you just uh, just recently, or what, what sparked what? your interest in that?
1: In cosmology, yeah. Oh, I've, no, I've been interested in that for quite a few years, yeah. Oh,
0: okay, okay, yeah. that's and, interesting. And, uh, in
1: fact, uh, right now I'm looking at a, a, a great course. It's called Philosophy and Physics, which is huh. uh, really very fascinating, pretty deep, too. But anyway, yeah, so I've, I've always had, had this, I, you know, I have interest in Shakespeare, uh, lit, one of my favorite authors, uh, who uh, recently passed away was Philip Roth. So I've written, I've read up almost all of his books, and so I uh, I really enjoy other things besides uh, uh, medicine. Looking
0: through a microscope, yeah, you look up sometimes. That's good. Um, so another question that came up is, how are you enjoying your retirement, and what are you up to now?
1: I love my retirement, and you know, I can honestly say that I wasn't sure that I would because I yeah. love. Doing what I was doing so much, all oh, the mm-hmm. work was so exciting. I couldn't even imagine retiring. But then, as I got up there in years, and I met with the chairman, Ralph Rubin, uh, and he said, "Well, we, we, you know, you're getting up there. You know, they want to replace people with younger people, which I'm totally in favor of." He said, "Why do you take uh, go halftime? See you like that." So I went halftime, and I really enjoyed it. It gave me the opportunity to do things that I. Didn't have the time to do before, so uh, after that one half year of uh, that one year of uh, halftime, I went full retirement, and I can't say that I've never looked back. The only thing I miss is interacting with my colleagues. As, far as the the work is concerned, that was uh, a chapter in my life that's now behind me, and now I'm doing uh, different things. Yeah, you know, what I do now. Well, one of the things I really enjoy doing now is a game called pickleball i don't know if you've ever heard of it,
0: it <laughs> is it like squash it sounds like squash. it's sort of
1: like that it's a, it, <laughs> it's a combination of table tennis badminton racquetball you play it on an outdoor court it's like on a small tennis court and you mm-hmm. play with paddles and instead of a tennis ball it's like a wiffle ball so um and i, I play a wiffle ball
0: day. not the thing that has the little net on it like an actual plastic ball yeah
1: right? a plastic okay. ball, a lot of holes in it so it uh you know you can get hit by it pretty hard but it doesn't really hurt and uh but it, yeah, that's it's, always my fear with racquetball yeah you know, that i'm gonna it.
0: yeah that's great so,
1: so i play every day for about two or three hours in the morning and then i have breakfast and uh, it's actually brunch but at that time and then it's never-ending stuff to do around the house i you know i used to not do much around the house so carol my wife did all that stuff, and now I'm doing more of that. And it's interesting, something, something that needs so, to be done. So, uh,
0: hang on, two to three hours of pickleball d- is this a game that one must play with another person? I assume. So uh, you have typically
1: a typically part- you play doubles. Uh, um, oh, uh, yeah, so you have you three
0: people, people who who also have enough time to play two to three hours of pickleball a day. That sounds wonderful. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: (laughs) There are about twenty people, and you know, you you rotate around. You play with different people. You win some games, you lose some games, and uh, in fact, I just recently bought a pickleball machine, which is a machine (laughs) that shoots the balls at you, and you gotta return them. So you like a
0: batting cage, basically, for pickleball. (laughs) Perfect pickleball oh. batting cage. That's what you're doing. I love it. So, are you still uh, swimming and like eating, eating uh, healthy? Yeah, and- well, I, mm-hmm.
1: I, I we hike. I don't. Uh, I do a little bit of swimming, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. I developed a, a, a similar of a, a, a allergy, a reaction to chlorine. So oh, I swim a there's a pool. Uh, I live uh, out here in a small. Well, it's a huge community, but the huge community has little communities within it. And the little community that I live in has a pool that's right across the street from where my building is. And uh, I, after pickleball, I come home and I dive into that pool to cool off mainly. But I do a little bit of swimming. And then in the, the winter, when I go to the Caribbean, spend a, a several weeks there, I do swimming out in the ocean. And that doesn't bother me at all.
0: How has the pandemic affected all of this? Are you still able to socialize with people? I assume you haven't been traveling as much.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I have not traveled much at all. I, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of socializing and doing things, I, I do have to point out that, that we have reservations for dinner.
0: Oh, <laughs> so you got to run soon. Okay, well, uh, let me ask you my, yeah, my my last few questions. Uh, okay, is there anything else you think that I missed that you wanted to say? Uh, no,
1: I'm delighted to hear uh, about the influence I had on and you and other fellows. I think that's one of the one of the true achievements in my life that I can think of is, has been so important to me. I think the work I did, but the, the education of, of young people coming into the field and encouraging them has been one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. And yeah. I'm, I'm really indebted to the, that I was able to do that.
0: Yeah, well, I know I wouldn't be the person I am without you. And that I, like I said, I hear your voice in my head, but not only your voice, but also your style of putting things into understandable terms for consultants, for trainees, for clinicians. And now I'm passing that on to the people I'm training. So really your, you know, your spirit and your generosity is really getting passed down to other people. And I think if I were you, that would make me feel good, especially since just looking at your CV, I know how hard you worked. So it's probably (laughs) nice to hear that all some good came from it. So thank you so much for joining me today. I don't want to keep you from your dinner plans. (laughs) Um, I hope you enjoy yourself and um, we'll talk soon.
1: Please keep in touch. And I really enjoyed this uh, little interview. It was a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity to do it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Have a good night.
1: You too. Thanks, Natalie. Bye-bye.